to see you here on this warm afternoon. You chose to come to the five o'clock teaching service, not, not Hyde Park. I'm greatly honoured, great, or Holland Park, which I think is nicer, but anyway. And I don't want to put thoughts into your head, you can still leave. It's good to see you. As you, as you heard, Robert Sladen is going to be with us at the five o'clock and seven o'clock service next week. So that should be uh, good, have, a, have him with us ministering. And um, Friday evenings, Friday evenings are now our Friday evening ministry services. And last Friday evening, we had a big presentation on creation versus evolution that was uh, excellent, so I heard. And this Friday evening, we have Ruth Ann Cannings, who is a minister here at Kensington Temple, and she will be ministering this Friday at our ministry night. And uh, the, the idea of the ministry evening is during that evening, we'll minister the word, but also it gives us time to flow with the Holy Spirit as long as we want. The, we can go on right through the evening as long as people need ministry on that Friday evening. So that's what's taking place there. But we're in the midst of a, a series. Really, it's a study on the mentoring and leadership skills of Jesus as a cell leader. Now, obviously, they didn't use the word cell leader. In those days, they didn't even know there were cells. They hadn't got that biological information yet. But I'm using that because that's something that we can relate to here today. Jesus had a small group of 12 men, and as I've been mentioning through the last weeks, that's where he spent most of his time, and that's to whom he gave the greatest energy. He didn't give all of his energy all of the time to the multitudes. He did minister to the multitudes and to those that came to him and, and people in different scenarios as the Holy Spirit led. But, but his, his method and uh, his desire and his strategy uh, would rise and fall on 12 men. Now, this series is based on an excellent book. I read it three times last year called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman, just in case you want to do some reading on this. And uh, uh, that's there for you. We, you can get them from the bookshop. And we, we're looking at different aspects of Jesus and how he mentored his disciples. And the first thing that we looked at was his selection. How very early on in his ministry, well, right from the beginning, when you read, when you study the Gospels, you know it's interesting to study the Gospels and do this leadership study of Jesus. Because when you read the Gospels, if, if you're not really studying it, then it can appear that Jesus is going around healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching here, preaching there, in some sort of haphazard manner. But it wasn't haphazard. Nothing Jesus did was haphazard. It was all part of strategy, all part of the plan. And right at the beginning there in John chapter 1 and 2, and right there in the early synoptic gospels, the word synoptic gospel, it's Greek for same, and that refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke you see that right from the beginning of his ministry, he's calling men to him to start his cell group. Takes him about a year to get them all, but that's his focus. We looked at selection. We looked at association, that Jesus didn't call his disciples to a theological training college or a Bible school. He called them to follow him. He 
the person of Jesus. He was the Bible school. He was the trading center. And today we're going to look at another emphasis that Jesus gave to his disciples. We've got selection, association, that they would be with him. And also, next, we have consecration. Now, when we speak about the word consecration, we're talking about separation for purpose. Whenever we speak about holy unto the Lord, when we speak about the utensils in the, uh, uh, the temple, they were holy. It doesn't just mean they were ooh, spiritually holy and weird. It meant that they were separated from common use for specific divine purpose. And so we're looking at, at that today. I've said that Jesus put all his hope for the future in mentoring his small group. We've mentioned that although he touched the multitudes, he never trusted himself to the multitudes. He knew what was in them. Uh, when he saw those multitudes, and, uh, and, and there were thousands and thousands of them, he didn't rejoice and say, I've made it into the ministry. Look at this. I have a church of multiple thousands. I can fill the greatest auditoriums. He wasn't happy when he saw the multitudes. It says that he was filled with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then straight after that, that's the end of Matthew 9, beginning of Matthew 10. Straight after that, he called his 12 to him. You see, Jesus wasn't just looking for crowds of people. He was looking for discipled crowds. He wanted shepherds to be amongst them. I remember in the 1990s, I've been at Kensington Temple since 1990 or so. I graduated, got my theology degree at Durham University, and then came down here to do a year's Bible college at Kensington Temple because I wanted to see ministry on the cutting edge. And uh, I remember through the 90s being part of church planting and gatherings, but I do remember looking out at the congregation and thinking to myself, because we were calling people to discipleship, how on earth are we going to disciple all these people? I mean, we had home groups and Bible study groups, but not everybody was going to go into those. We were starting satellite churches. Not everybody would want to be in a pioneering environment. The most I could hope was that many people would come to the Bible school because there you could really get hold of people and disciple them. And so when we began the cell vision in earnest in you know, the year 2000 onwards, I finally saw that there was now a possibility for everyone who wanted to and was gifted to to become a leader and for everybody to be effectively discipled right where they were. And the model of 12, we call our cell vision the model of 12, is based on the model of Jesus. And uh, we know that soci sociology teaches us that the optimum small group is 12. And Jesus had his 12, but of course he also had three close associates, Peter, James, and John. They were actually there to support him. They didn't do a very good job, but they were actually there to support him. He took them into the private time when he was at, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He took them into the room where he brought the young girl back from the dead. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was looking for his disciples, but he was looking for Peter, James, and John. Can't you just stay with me? This is when I, when I need you at your most. Small groups mattered to Jesus. I've already said that there was only 130 of them left by the day of Pentecost. 500 saw him raised from the dead at once. But then when they started daily prayer meetings, it sort of thinned off a little bit. 
And by the time it was the day of Pentecost, they only had, Jesus' church was 130 strong. Think of that. I mean, he had touched multitudes, thousands upon thousands of people. He had spoken to the Pontius Pilots of this world. He had done all those things. But then he was left with 130 on the day of Pentecost. I'm sure there was a few more, but they were the, you know, they were the hardcore uh, Christians that right there. And yet, he, was, he had pre-planned this to take place because he knew that as he ministered to his 12, that they would be the multiplying factor that would take Christianity across the world. And it's an interesting history to do, actually, to look at the history of the 12 apostles. Now, you've got some uh, history in the Acts of Apostles and some of the epistles, but also, although you don't know how much of it is true, there are stories and tales of where different apostles went, like we're pretty sure that Thomas, uh, doubting Thomas, ended up ministering in India, for example. And, And that's a fascinating thing. They really did spread throughout the world. But today, we're looking specifically at the emphasis of consecration. Jesus, when he chose his apostles, he didn't require a certain level of education. They didn't have to have certain GCSEs. They didn't have to have certain A-levels. They didn't have to have gone to a theological college. They didn't have to go to one of the great uh, Pharisee schools of the time. Um, He didn't require education or credentials. But what he did require and what was expected was loyalty. That was expected. They were disciples. They were his disciples. They were learners of the master. He was their rabbi. There was no entrance test, no signing up to a certain doctrine. He didn't say, okay, well, here's 30 points of doctrine. Do you agree with those? Well, they hardly knew anything of Jesus' teaching when they followed him. But All he asked to them was this. He didn't ask them for tests. He just said, follow me. Follow me. Why? Because it wasn't about doctrine tests. It wasn't about Bible schools. Because Jesus was the truth. And Jesus was the way. This wasn't some school of principles. This was a school of following Jesus. And by following the person, then you would learn the doctrine that you needed to learn or the teaching that you needed to learn. This needed from the disciples right from the beginning a high level of personal trust and faith. I mean, think about it. I mean, I know we know in the beginning of John's gospel that John the Baptist said to some of the apostles that were following him, he said, you know, it's ended. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, follow him. And on John the Baptist's testimony, they'd already been in his revival movement, they went to follow Jesus. But that needed to trust, it needed faith. I mean, you think of the fishermen. They left their boats and their income to follow him. They left it all, they left their families. You know, people talk about, you know, the importance of families, but Jesus said, let me tell you something. I'll tell you who my mother is. I'll tell you who my brother is. He or she that does the will of God. And when he called his disciples, they left their wives, they left their families, they were married, they had families to follow Jesus. That's a lot. I mean, you you have to really hear the call of God to follow Jesus like that and to go with him for three years 
And Peter said to him at one time, when Jesus said to him, you know, how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God? It's more difficult for a camel to get through an eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the eye of the needle, that was, that, that, that was speaking about a special gate in Jerusalem and, that, and a, one of these special gates in Jerusalem that was so small that you couldn't get through it on horseback. You had to dismount. You had to get off your high horse to go through that. And that's what Jesus was saying. It's very difficult for a rich or influential person to get off their high horse and enter the kingdom of God. And Peter's response was, well, who then can, who then can't be, can be saved? Because in, in popular theology at that time, if you were rich, you were blessed. If you were poor, you were cursed. And surely the rich people who God had blessed so much, they would be first in the kingdom of God. And that was the popular incorrect thinking. In fact, it was the other way around. It's the poor, the despised, the downtrodden, and the forgotten that are first in the queue for the kingdom of God. And I tell you what, if we want mighty uh, multiplication and growth, then where we need to go is where the poor people are, the forgotten people are, the people that society is not really bothered with. They'll come to Christ like that. Because that's the way the gospel works. Not many choke, not many rich, not many famous, not many clever. It seems that God has chosen the poor things, the base things, the excluded things, and the forgotten things for his glory. It's a principle. But Jesus, when he said this, and Peter said, we have given up everything to follow you. And Jesus said to him, let me tell you, there is nobody that gives up houses and homes and families to follow me that will not be rewarded in this life and the life to come. So there was a willingness in all of the disciples to make a radical commitment to follow Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that we all have to leave our families, our wives, and everything like that. You know, that was the context. But what it does mean is that we have to have a sense of radical separation and a radical belief that we're following Jesus. This isn't Sunday Christianity, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, what we get at the 11 o'clock, that's the crowds, do you hear what I'm saying? And we have disciples among them, and the, 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 the 11 o'clock is just one big funnel, you know, and let everybody come, and they do, and whoever comes, you know, it's, 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 it's a big funnel. But you know, it takes a lot to come on a sunny day to the five o'clock service. I want to commend you, you're here. Um, you know, I'm not going to talk anymore about ice creams in the park and stuff like that in case I thin you out a bit. But if I was Jesus, I probably would. If I was Jesus, I'd probably try and even thin you out. And you're the ones here looking for the teacher. I'd be like, you know, there's beautiful ice cream out there. Who wants to go out to ice cream? In fact, here, who wants it? I'll give you the money. Go on, off you go. Before I preach. Okay? Because when you look at Jesus... Jesus did not pander to the crowds. He didn't play to the crowds. He ministered to the crowds. But in the end, the crowds couldn't take his message of consecration and following him. Remember, 666, not the Revelation one, but John 6, no, yeah, John 6, verse 66. You read that. That is the point when Jesus ministered to the crowd and said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And he wouldn't explain it, and he wouldn't soften it. And they all went away, 
because it was a hard saying. And even the disciples said, Jesus said, you're going to leave too? And it was almost like Peter said, I'll tell you what, Jesus, if we could, we would. But unfortunately, there's no one else to go to who has the words of eternal life. In this day and age, you can thin the crowds out very easily with a discipleship message or a message of consecration. In fact, no secret that many churches are built on popularity and keeping the crowds happy. Give them what they want. Give them the sermons that they want on the topics that they want in the way that they want. In fact, even have a survey to find out what they want more so that you can give it to them and build it with entertainment and build it with whatever way you want. And then when you get to that place where you've built the crowds, hold on to them. Hold, do everything. Don't let them out. Don't let them out. Keep them, keep them, keep them. And that that can be a horrendous place to be in for a minister. To be in a place where you feel that you can't follow Jesus and ask people to follow Jesus because you might lose some. Because you might thin some out. Uh, But Jesus, as I said, his focus was on the the small groups. And uh, he said very clearly in Matthew 16, verse 24. Whoever, well let me read it, Matthew 16, 24. What we're really hearing is the call to discipleship today, and you'll have heard that many times if you're part of Kensington Temple. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires, desires, linger on that word, to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? This is a very powerful statement. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you have to carry your cross. Well, what does this mean? Well, it means two things. It means that we are crucified as Paul said we are crucified to the world and the world is crucified to us now when you think about what the cross is and what that means that is radical call to following isn't it I mean this really is that you see for Jesus the call to follow him was always on his terms today there's a lot of negotiating going on with God. It's like, all right, we'll follow you, but we'll follow you if, ah, okay, not that bit. Yeah, I'll give you that bit. There's a negotiation going on. I understand where people are coming from, with flesh and bone, but Jesus, there was no no negotiation. No negotiation. It was like, crucify yourself to the world. And crucifixion was absolute death. Absolute death. So that you were totally consecrated and separated from the things of the world so that you can follow him. In fact, he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Radical call. Forsaking old life patterns. 
Forsaking old habits, practices, characteristics, flaws. Taking those things and pinning them to the cross and killing those things to the cross. Interesting, there's a lot of talk about love today. John 14, Jesus spoke about love. And how does love manifest? Is love an emotional manifestation or feel so good when I worship you, Lord, I just feel so in love with you? Well, of course, emotions are a fruit and product of love. But how does Jesus define love in action? How does he say, how, when Jesus says, how do I know you love me? What is he looking for? Okay, where am I? John 14. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, same chapter, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So this is quite incredible, because Jesus is saying that true love of Jesus manifests through obedience. Now, we talk a lot about grace, and so we should. Because it's by grace that we've been saved. I've even written a book on grace called No More Law. I mean, you can't get any more, you know, against the law than writing a book saying no more law. Not a bit, not one bit of it. No more law, okay? So we believe in grace. By grace you're saved, not by works, not by obedience, but faith. And that is the gift of God. But here Jesus is saying, you want to show me you love me? Yeah, obey me. Obey me. Obedience. So as we grow in love, we are going to grow in obedience. Not as we grow in fear, hear me. We don't do things because we fear the flames of hell. Because we fear that if we don't follow Jesus, you know, he's going to throw a lightning bolt from heaven. It's going to strike us. No, no, not out of fear. This is the thing, not out of fear. There are many Christians in the world, I assume, who do the right things because they're scared of what will happen to them if they do the wrong things. You know what I'm talking about? Some of us have come from church backgrounds where perhaps this fear of punishment is one of the main driving forces of, of why, we, why we don't, you know, why, why we what, live a, a life of obedience. That's not acceptable to God. God doesn't accept any obedience that comes from fear of punishment. The fear of the Lord is a totally thing, different thing altogether. The fear of the Lord is just respecting someone. Just re healthy respect. But here, it's not just even the fear of the Lord. Here, it's love. If you love me. And I think we can translate this. Jesus said, do you know how you know I love the Father? Uh, I don't know, because you talk about him a lot. No. Uh, because you pray to him. You do a lot of praying to your Father, so you must love him a lot. No. Or is it because you read the Old Testament, Jesus, and, there's, and, and that comes from the Father? No. Jesus, again and again in John's Gospel, he says this. Do you know why I love my Father? No. Because I do what he asks me to do. 
And the beautiful thing is that Jesus learned obedience. There's that wonderful picture of his childhood. We don't know much about his childhood except the fact when he was in his father's house and his earthly parents thought they were with him going home. But we know that it says that he, he learnt obedience not only to his, his heavenly father, but he learnt obedience to his mother and earthly father. Now when you say why he learnt obedience, was he disobedient? No. Every time he came to that point of disobedience or obedience, he chose obedience. Why? Because he was frightened that Joseph was going to cane him? No, because he loved his mother and father. He loved Joseph, his adoptive father. He loved Mary, loved her. And so he was, I'm sure he was obedient to them when he probably thought, actually, they're asking me to do something, not that's wrong, but they're asking me to do something that isn't the right way of doing it. I mean, Jesus was perfect. Can you imagine being the perfect child? I was, and... I wasn't. But can you imagine being the perfect child with imperfect parents? Sometimes it's difficult being an imperfect child with imperfect parents, isn't it? And especially when you're a teenager, that's when you notice all your parents' faults, don't you, often? Oh, you're such a hypocrite, Dad. Oh, leave me alone, Mom. Ooh, I'm having flashbacks. And when you're a teenager, you notice all the faults. You don't notice your own, but you notice theirs. Imagine being perfect, perfect, and you have to be obedient to imperfect parents, not that you'd do anything wrong they told you to do. Why was he obedient? Because he loved. He loved. He loved his father. He loved his parents. He loved his heavenly father. And that was demonstrated in obedience. Wives, be obedient to your husbands. Well, you know, why? Because in marriage, it's the same. If you truly love your husband, you will have a spirit of obedience. True? Now, we know the other side of the coin, which is even, in my view, harder. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and be prepared to even give up your life and your needs for her. So, there's two great models for wives and husbands. But do you hear what I'm saying? The link between love and obedience. Now, obedience without love is legalism, Phariseeism, but obedience that comes out of love is a choice. And God, as we grow in love, we will grow in obedience. Now, I, I, can't, I don't know if your obedience is the obedience of love, the obedience of fear, the obedience of religiosity, the obedience of culture. I don't know, but you will know. You will know. Because whatever you do in obedience, if it's an offering... It's a sacrifice. If it comes from a willing heart, even though it's difficult to make the decision, then that shows you that the fruit of your love is genuine obedience. I'm doing this because I love you, Lord. And that's a powerful thing that he's talking about. And this is what he expected of his disciples. Jesus was, was, was looking for them and looking to train them to be fit vessels of service. And if they were going to follow him, they were going to have to, pray, to pay the price and count the cost. I mean, it's incredible. Well, I think it's incredible. Week by week, looking at how Jesus acted. Because he's not always as we appear. He is loving, he is meek, he is mild. And you know, to people that were in a mess, he didn't come up to them saying, obedience, obedience, obedience. 
to people that were in a mess that he went to, the prostitutes and those on the edges of society and the lepers, he just brought grace, 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 grace. To the multitudes, grace, 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 healing, provision, grace, grace, grace. And Jesus is always like that. Grace, peace, grace, healing, ministry, love, peace, peace. And when he's finished ministering to the multitudes, he then says, anybody want to follow me? And they all cheer, yes, okay, well, take up your cross and follow me. Oh no, we don't want to take up my cross and stay where you are. And he let the crowds die down because he would not compromise his call to discipleship. Because if he did, not only would he be compromising his own ministry, he would be giving them bad stuff. If he said it's okay not to follow me, because he did say if you give your life you'll find it. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things that keep us from the kingdom of God that are legitimate will be added unto us. So he won't be able to count the cost. Matthew chapter 8 verse 19. Someone wanted to follow him. He said, you know, foxes have their holes, birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie, lay his head. In Luke chapter 8 verse 21, someone came to him and said, you know, I'm going to follow you, Lord, but I've just had a death in the family, so I'll just go to the funeral, sort that out, and then I'll follow you. And Jesus turned and said, let the dead follow their dead. You come and follow me. And you say, wow, that's a bit rough, a bit hard. Well, it was not, it wasn't Jesus' fault. The man asked to be his follower. You understand what I'm saying? If the man just wanted to be a believer, if the man just wanted to receive from Jesus the teaching and the blessing and just be one of the crowds that's blessed by Jesus, touched by Jesus, saved by Jesus, fine. Don't ask the question. So, he, you see, he wanted to come, and the other one with the birth, they wanted to come to Jesus, and they wanted to negotiate the terms of discipleship. There is no negotiation for the terms of discipleship. Jesus does not negotiate it doesn't negotiate it. Now, you can follow him as much as you want. God always loves you. God is love. Because I do believe that there is a difference between a believer and a disciple, to put it in maybe larger than life words. Because all you need to do to get saved is believe. It's a free gift. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't have to follow Jesus and crucify yourself and, and, and give up everything to get to heaven. That's not required. That, that's like saying, Jesus, your death on the cross was not enough. Do you hear what I'm saying? So entrance into heaven is easy. You just believe. You just believe. And if you believe in him, you're going to heaven. But discipleship is an altogether different matter. Following him is an altogether different matter. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. No man having put his hand to the plough who then looks back, is worthy of following me. Jesus had no time for those who wanted to make their own terms of discipleship with him. In Luke 14, 28. Now, this message that I'm teaching you is strong meat, isn't it? 
I mean, you have to be pretty grounded in grace to take this. That's why I'm saying and emphasizing the fact that heaven is a gift. Salvation is a gift. But Jesus is calling for radical discipleship. Luke 14, verse... Well, let's go to 25, because it mentions the multitudes. Because here he is, dealing with the multitudes. Luke 14, 25... Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, isn't this great? We'll have another conference on prosperity, deliverance and freedom from the enemy next week. No. The great, great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, Even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he is enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So, likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. No wonder he only had a handful left. And and even the handful he left, left him. (laughs) And even his strongest supporter, Peter, who said, I'll never forsake you, did. And so what are we talking about? We are talking about a deep call of consecration. The pastoral part of me is concerned that I've almost put out Jesus' call to disciple too brutally, you know? But this is what Jesus said. It doesn't mean if you don't get the grade, you get rejected. But Jesus is is looking for people that are going to follow him. And his standards are not our standards. They're not my standards. They're not your standards. They're his standards. And I think we have to be careful, and I include myself in this foremost as well, not to dumb the message of Jesus down or not to understand the temperature of our spirituality by comparing us with the temperature of those around us. I think that is one of the greatest dangers in church life today in Great Britain, is that we actually consider our level of spirituality by looking at those around us. This is where a lot of hypocrisy and Phariseeism comes in. You know, somebody that looks down at other believers, criticizes other believers, gossips about other believers, tells about other believers' failures. Do you know what? They are hypocrites themselves and Pharisees themselves. Why? Because they are putting somebody else down in order to raise themselves up. Because they're putting themselves in the place of judgment seat. 
And you can only be in judgment seat if you are raised above those that you are judging. And you have no right to judge somebody else unless you are more righteous than them. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. Because with the measure that you judge others, you will be judged yourself. And so don't, don't talk and gossip about the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a plank you can't even see in your eye. So when we're talking about the call to discipleship, I think there's an arrogance that's in the church today. I think there's an arrogance. I look at my life and I'm con concerned about it, an arrogance that, you know, we think we're in a place and God's laughing. He's saying, you're nowhere near, son. You know, you, we think we're playing in the Premier League. Do you know what I'm saying? We're not even on the substitute bench of the local pub team. We think we've got a reputation. We're Kensington Temple, or whatever church it might be. And God said, I'm not impressed. What you need is eye salve. You need to anoint your eyes and see yourself, not according to the standards or perceived standards of those around you, but the standards of Jesus' call to discipleship. There are people that have plateaued in their discipleship because they think that they've made an acceptable grade. It's not about going to heaven, they understand that. But they think they're doing all right. They think they're all right with God at the levels of their discipleship. They, th they think they're a disciple of Jesus. I don't know, according to the few things that I've spoken to you today, whether I could properly count myself as a follower of Jesus, according to what Jesus has said here. You're hearing me? Now, that is not depressing to me to think about those things. On the contrary, it is sobering. It causes change to take place. If Jesus lowered his discipleship call and his discipleship standard to where we are and said, that's okay, we will never grow. We will never mature. We will hit the ceiling of what we think is acceptable and that's it. But I know enough about the past history of the church and that there are saints that we aren't worthy of. And I'm not just talking about saint so-and-so and saint so-and-so. I'm not talking about some great preacher of a great revival. I'm talking about moves of God. I'm talking about groups of Christians. I'm talking about that God, if he could translate us from this place today and put us down somewhere in the world of great persecution, maybe amongst the believers in northern Nigeria, I think I'd be the new believer. Do you know what I'm saying? I think they'd be feeding me spiritual milk. Do you know what I'm talking about? There is so much more for us to learn and grow in. There's so much more in being called of God. So much more. But in order for us to access the more that God has for us, we're going to have to follow him closer. We're going to have to spend time and think about where we are and what the Spirit is really saying to us and think about the cost 
and think about the cost of the next stage in following him. You hear what I'm saying? All those scriptures I were giving you, it was Jesus saying, count the cost. It was like, look, you got no, if you've got nowhere to sleep, will you follow me? Look, if I ask you to put me first before your family, your parents, your, your children, how do you measure up to that? How do you measure up to that? How difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? How do you measure up to that? If anyone desires to be my disciple, desires, if you want, you've got to take up your cross and you follow me. How do you measure up to that? This, you see, everything Jesus does is for our blessing. Do you know that? But he can be tough as nails sometimes. I mean, he can be as tough as nails. You talk about tough love. Anybody that's ever followed Jesus and Jesus has had to put you into, or, put you into order. Do you know what I'm talking about? Has anybody had Jesus have to put them into order? Has anyone ever been disciplined by the Lord? Don't want to do that again. <laughs> so if you have truly been disciplined by the Lord, you don't want it again. I think when the Lord has disciplined me in the past, I think, my God, I'm so grateful that he did, by the way. So grateful that he stepped in and disciplined me, sorted me out. But I tell you what, I don't ever want it again. It was the hardest experience. You know what I'm saying? He's tough. He's tough. But it's all motivated by love. He wants us freed from Satan's grip. He wants us freed from bitterness, pride, and the works of the flesh. He wants us freed. And he's brutal in his love for us and his jealousy over us and his desire to be with us. I mean, we read that passage from John where we, where we saw John 14, 21. It says, he who loves me will obey my command and me and my father will manifest ourselves. As we follow him, we get more of him. As we consecrate ourselves in ever-increasing ways, we get more of God and we get more of the kingdom of God. You know, you know at times in your life of deep consecration, sometimes deep, followed with deep sacrifice, isn't the fellowship with Jesus different? Hmm? Isn't there a presence that's different? And when you're just merrily going on your way and God's there in the background, something's missing. The connection's not, not like it was. The Wi-Fi's down. God has got so much for us. I feel like a hypocrite preaching this. I'm not preaching it only to you. I'm preaching it to myself. I'm not standing here. I wish I could stand here and say, this is what I am not. I can stand here and say, this is what I'm thinking about. And awareness is half the battle. Do you know that? Awareness is half the battle. Self-awareness is half the battle. God-awareness is half the battle. The greatest danger is a lack of awareness where we're not even beginning to wrestle with the major issues of the kingdom. There is nothing worse than a lack of self-spiritual awareness. Nothing worse. This is the message that R.T. Kendall really 
has been preaching to us, hasn't he? About being asleep, the church being asleep, and the foolish virgins and the wise virgins who were both asleep, and then the final moment and the midnight cry comes, and people aren't ready, and this sleepiness. People that are asleep aren't aware that they're asleep. Like R.T. says, when you're asleep, you say things you wouldn't normally say, and you do things you wouldn't normally do, and it's only when you awake that you knew that you were asleep. It's this slumber, this sleeping. And I do believe that R.T.'s not just preaching a sermon because he feels like it. I believe that it's a call in the spirit. And you say, well, I, I, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet either. But thank God we're thinking about it. We're wrestling. We're coming to the Lord and saying, well, the only way I can do this is by the Spirit's help. And I want to close by saying, all of this is by the Spirit's help. Your greatest friend and strength is the Holy Spirit. He is the most important person on planet Earth today. And notice that Jesus, when he said to his disciples, he said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. He didn't say, off you go and be my disciples, did he? He didn't say, off you go, do the work. He said, wait, wait, wait. You can't do this in your own strength. We don't want to get back to the Middle Ages where people in their own strength tried to sanctify themselves by this method and that method and, and you know, uh, p- putting all sorts of things on starving themselves and doing penance and all that sort of stuff without the spirit. These things are, are absolutely against the spirit. In fact, they're fleshly. But the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that it's by the spirit we put to death the works of the flesh. When we follow Jesus, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you're not left on your own, but you go to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, keep in step with the Holy Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. There is a battle. And you know what? It's the Holy Spirit that's fighting it on your behalf because the flesh hates the spirit and the things of the flesh that keep us from following God. But the Holy Spirit hates with a godly hate the things of the flesh. And they are against one another. And their passions are against one another. The passion of the spirit is against the things of the flesh. And fleshly things, the passion is against them. And, there is, and then Paul says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the passions of the flesh. This isn't some self-energizing. This is not, this is an embracing of supernatural power and glory. The presence of the Spirit. The presence of God. That's what we should be seeking. It's not focusing on all the things we shouldn't do. It's focusing on all the things that he is. You hear what I'm saying? It's a journey. It's a, it's a walking with the Spirit. It's The Holy Spirit is called our paraclete, called alongside to help. And he's the key. You can't do it without him. But with the Holy Spirit, he will show you how. Give you power. It's a journey. Consecration. Now, after consecration, 
which we'll look at not next week, but the week after, comes impartation. And this is going to be a powerful thing. Impartation. When Jesus imparts his life, his grace, and his power into our lives. Now, at the 7 o'clock service tonight, I'm going to be preaching on something which I know it must be prophetic because I had no intention of thinking about, preaching about it. It wasn't in my mind. And the Holy Spirit dropped it into my heart. And what I'll be prophesying tonight and teaching on in the ministry service is God's timing. And we'll be looking at two words in the New Testament and Old Testament Greek, kairos and chronos. And we're going to be looking at the seasons of God in our lives. Because coming out of this, from what I've just taught, God has seasons for our lives. Seasons, opportune times. There are two types of timings. There is chronos. That's simply second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year. Click, tick, 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 tick. That's one word. But then there is kairos. And kairos is about God's seasons, God's timing. And we need to know what season we are in. What season you are in personally. You need, what season are you in right now? If you don't know it, you may be working against it and not cooperating with it. And that's why you're struggling. You need to know your personal season. But you also need to know a corporate season. We need to know the season of God in our church. We need to know the season of God in our land. We need to know the seasons of God that we're in in order to prosper, in order to cooperate not just going along day by day, not saying you are, week by week, doing the same thing, wondering where it's about. This is a journey. God has a beginning and an end, and he has key seasons, and he has key moments, key sovereign moments of kairos that drop into your chronos and changes everything. And I just and I had no intention of speaking of that at all. That was the last thing on my mind. I was going to continue on sort of Abraham, Isaac, and all that stuff. But for some reason, I'm going to be speaking about that at the 7 o'clock tonight. Well, God bless you. And see you with Robert Sledden next week. Don't forget the book, if you're interested to go a little bit more in depth. It's 699, The Master Plan of Evangelism, which really is about Jesus' method of making disciples with his 12.